Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Trayvell Anderson. You might recognize them. If you're a regular on this show, they've actually hosted it a few times. They're also the host of the great podcast Fantai, and they've covered entertainment for Essence, Time Magazine, and Out, among many other outlets. Trayvell is non-binary and black, and they often focus their work on identity, especially the places where queerness intersects with blackness. They've profiled Lil Nas X, Billy Porter, and Janelle Monet, among others. It makes sense, then, that their first book is about that intersection. It's called We See Each Other, A Black Trans Journey Through TV and Film. Partly, it's a history of trans representation on screen, especially black trans representation, the good and the bad. It's also a personal history, a story of how Trayvell came into their own identity. But hey, why am I still talking when I have one of the greatest talkers I have ever known right here? Let's get into my conversation with Trayvell Anderson. Trayvell Anderson, uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to see you here. Oh, I, I should say welcome back to Bullseye, but welcome to Bullseye as a guest. I know, right? I know. Well, it's the tables have turned. Oh, how the tables have turned. Listen, they turn so quickly. So why did you want to write a book about the history of trans representation and especially black trans representation in film and television? Yeah. You know, as a journalist covering the last decade or so of this conversation, one of the things that stuck out to me was this idea that so many people seem to believe that we as trans people dropped onto the face of the earth with Laverne Cox and Orange is the New Black and her Time magazine cover in 2014. But we know, those of us in community, those of us not in community, know that, like, trans people have always been here in every culture, in every community, in every society on this globe since the beginning of time. Um, And I think it's deeply important to acknowledge that history, both for trans people as a means of, like, allowing us to continue living and existing and loving and thriving because we know that we belong to a long lineage of folks who did it before us, but also as a means of hopefully improving the material realities of trans people in everyday life because folks will begin to say, oh, it's not that, you know these people are new, it's that I just didn't know. And that the reason why I didn't know, right, is because I did not create a safe enough environment for the trans people who are already existing in my everyday community to disclose to me that they were trans. And they didn't do that because they didn't feel safe. And so the goal of the book and the reason behind the book was to kind of assert and claim a history that has always existed and been present, but to kind of shine a light on it. Um, And then to also, in the process of writing the book, it became more personal um, than I intended. 
But it became important to also, you know, kind of document my own story, my own gender journey alongside many of these images, right, that we often talk about or think about in the conversation of trans representation. There were very few specific uh, representations of trans people in American film and television before mm-hmm. 20 years ago or mm-hmm. so. And so a big part of this story is stories about those few representations there were, which mm-hmm. were often very problematic, and those kinds of sideways mm-hmm. representations, things that a trans person could identify with, things that you can recognize as having resonances of the trans experience. Mm -hmm. So let's start first, before we get into your personal history, let's talk about before your personal history. (laughs) Um, What are the first filmed representations that that you would say reflect transness in some way? Well, I would say an early representation that I would call out in terms of a character that was played by a trans person that I think is important to distinguish from a number of the other characters that we might discuss would be the Lady Shibley in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, uh, which is a film, a book that many people are familiar with, but that made the Lady Shibley a cult celebrity of sorts. She was both an actual human being, a character in this book. Yes. And a character in the film played by the actual human being herself. Yes, absolutely. And I encourage people to check out her autobiography, in particular the audiobook version because she reads it herself. Amazing. But I, I list that as an earlier positive, largely, example of trans life on screen. And then there are other images that I think cisgender people might conflate with trans identity that require us to grapple with them. And so that's where we talk about a psycho or a silence of the lambs, right? But all of this dates back to even before moving images began to the era of vaudeville, to the ways in which we saw in particular men, right, dressing up in drag to perform, to entertain, um, and being intentional about separating their characters from their identities and who they are as, who they were as men. Um, And so when you look back at the archives of, you know, magazines and publications who covered these individuals, you see how much they focus on telling us as an audience that, okay, yes, this person plays this character, but in their real life, they're such a man. You know, they like to get in fights. You know, they like to sleep around with everybody, right? These these ways to assert, right, some sort of security or understanding of, of their actual manhood and not anything else um, that might be going on. And so, yeah, I think, you know, there are a number of characters, a number of images that factor into this, some that we readily think about when we talk about trans representation and others that nonetheless still inform that discussion, whether or not it was an actual trans character or not. So as you said, there are, of course, hundreds and thousands Mm -hmm. of years of people performing genders other than their own for entertainment, Mm -hmm. right? But at the beginning of the film era, 
one of the big genres of comedy was men dress as women. Mm-hmm. And some of the earliest film shorts, film comedies, are men dressed as women. Yeah. How do those things feel to you to watch now? Yeah, well, I would go further and say that it hasn't stopped, right? So watching, you know, Meet Me at the Fountain, which is a 1914 silent film, it's like six minutes long, you can watch it on YouTube, and now watching Tyler Perry as Medea, you know, Martin Lawrence as Shanene, Jamie Foxx as Wanda, Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire. To me, it's the, it's the same impact, right? Um, and the important thing I think we should be noting and realizing is that those same types of jokes and commentary that are lodged at those characters are the exact same jokes and commentary that get lodged at us as trans people, um, in particular trans women in films in everyday life, in real community. And most important for me in that conversation is focusing on the Black men who have dressed in drag and becoming uh, famous for these characters that they've played because it is Black women, Black trans women, and Black trans femmes who are, you know, over-indexing compared to our counterparts in all of the isms and obias and violences that we are experiencing. And in my everyday, in real life, the same jokes that they make, we make about, you know, Medea's hands or her voice or her, you know, legs or her size and stature are the exact same things that we get told and joked about in everyday life. And it leads to real violence, i.e. the murders of Black trans people. And so... It requires us just to think more differently about that which we see on screen and the everyday real-life material impact that it's having. And yet still, I love Tyler Perry as Medea. I want to be clear. And so part of the book is also about, like, not trying to do away with or, like, cancel any particular cultural production, but to legitimately wrestle with it, right? And to be able to hopefully make a judgment call about how we may be internalizing the things that we see on screen and how they might be manifesting in our everyday communities. Much more to get into with Trayvell Anderson. Their new book is We See Each Other. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Trayvell Anderson. They're an award-winning journalist and the co-host of the podcast, Fanti. Trayvell also just released the book, We See Each Other, A Black Trans Journey Through TV and Film. It's a personal exploration of trans representation on screen, especially black trans representation. Let's get back into our conversation. So, obviously, there are explicitly trans characters Mm -hmm. and publicly trans performers Mm -hmm. in entertainment and always have been. But I think in American entertainment, mostly in the last 20 years or so, especially the two of those together. Mm -hmm. And so representations of transness come sideways often. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's really important to distinguish transness from other forms of gender expression mm -hmm. in entertainment. So tell me what the difference is between a trans character and a male character who's wearing women's clothing. Yeah. So Sophia Bursette, which Laverne Cox played in Orange is the New Black, is a trans character. Buffalo Bill is not. That's the bad guy from the Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Um, you know, the difference is, right, trans people, trans characters, there is no, the good ones, there is no air of deception. There is no air of, you know, trying to get away with something. Um, mockery. Mockery, right? It's not necessarily the identity of a trans character is not necessarily the punchline, right? But so often with a number of these other characters, I call them drag characters because that's what they are, right? Um, they are men and people, right? Because it's not just men who have, have embodied some of these trans characters, but they are dressing up for the sake of performance. And the characters often are trying to, you know, evade responsibility for something. They are trying to um, commit or reproduce harm in, in community. And trans characters... Even if it's playful. Even if even it's Mrs. If it's Doubtfire. Playful. Even if it's Mrs. Doubtfire. And we all love Mrs. Doubtfire. Me too. Me included. Um, but there is... The, the thing to think about is the fact that... in. So many instances, those characters, right, the actors are able to take off the wig, take off the dress, right, and go about their life. Sophia Bursette, Laverne Cox as Sophia Bursette, is able to not only embody and breathe life into that role on screen based on the truth of her own lived experience, right, but she also, once they yell cut, is still a Black trans woman, Right. And so her ability to articulate the needs of that community, the desires of of visibility for that community um, is very different than Jeffrey Tambor. Right. When they yelled cut on transparent and he attempted to have those conversations, it means something different when the dude is walking down the red carpet trying to talk about trans issues and a trans person is walking down the red carpet attempting to do the same. Now, this is going to be basic business for a lot of people listening, but mm -hmm. I don't think for all people listening, you write a lot about drag performance mm -hmm. in the book. Drag performers include both trans and cis people. Yes. But they're primarily cis people. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about what drag is and how that's differentiated from, you know, fundamental gender identity. Yeah. I mean, drag is about a performance. It's about an act. It's about entertainment. Even trans people who perform, who are drag performers, right? They're doing and affecting a particular gig for an audience's entertainment. And gender is an essential part of that 
performance. Absolutely. That is in some ways it's, the basis of It's poking fun at gender. It is blowing up gender. It is interrogating gender um, in so many different ways. Um, but as trans people, we are not trans for your enjoyment, right? We are not trans for your consumption, um, even as some trans people are also drag performers. Yeah, or some trans people are entertainers or, in general. Absolutely, in forms, right? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Lady Shibley who would balk at the thought of me calling her a drag queen. Um, but she was a performer, right? She was a showgirl. Um, and I think it's interesting to have a conversation about images of of drag in conversation with images and the experiences of of trans folks, because we know that some trans people who are drag performers have accessed, right, their truth through that art of performance, right? Um, But that does not negate the difference in the separation therein, right? And so how do we talk about the impact of a Tu Wong Fu Right. Or a Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, um, these drag narratives. Right. As it relates to our discourse around transness. I want to ask you about your own childhood. Mm -hmm. You had a single mother who was in the military. So a lot of the time you were raised by your grandmother. Tell me about your grandmother. My grandmother's name, um, my maternal grandmother, um, Dorothy Montgomery Holmes, she was a pastor in Charleston, South Carolina. She founded her own church called God's Tabernacle of Prayer, Church of Christian Fellowship. And she founded that church because the church in which she, that she was a member of, in which she came to her calling um, from Christ, did not let women preach. And so she left and she founded her own church in her living room with her seven or eight kids. I keep messing that up. It's right in the book. My mom keeps reminding me that. Um, They were her first parishioners, were her kids. And then she ended up, you know, building it into a storefront church and whatnot. And she built it into a storefront church in no small part because she didn't have the opportunity to lead a church unless it was her own church that Absolutely. she had created she had no because choice. she was a woman. Yeah, she had no choice. She she felt called, right, by Christ to do this work. And the church in which she was in did not let her or other women, right, do it. And so she, in order to act on the call, she founded her church. And she helped raise us and was an early possibility model for me um, in terms of just like my grandmother, who I loved, she also was a little bit of a local celebrity because her and her siblings uh, had a singing, like a gospel singing group. And so they traveled throughout the low country in the South, singing at different revivals and church, you know, performances. And I often say, and I say in the book that I ended up learning in retrospect a lot about gender, being under her in church Because of the ways in which not only she was like a feminist icon in her own right, pushing up against the ways in which some folks felt that she should or should not be showing up in the world, but also how she created a space that ended up reproducing the very harms that she was fighting against. Um, Not only reproducing for herself 
and for the other women in her congregation, but also for everyone else, um, and myself included. And so I love my grandmother and and will always do. And she was pivotal in so much of who I am today. I consider myself a church queen still to this day. Um, and I love God just like everybody else. Um, but I also now have a, a different lens on the world that complicates that um, relationship to faith and spirituality. Um, but my grandmother is is a core of sorts, even as... I continue to interrogate what it means to exist, right, in this particular world, um, in the the body and the mindset and the the spiritual place, right, that I take up. Church is a classic place where gender is enforced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't imagine that was different even at your grandmother's church where there was a woman pastor, it seems like an interesting place, particularly as an outsider in the black church, because that top layer is often male, mm-hmm. but it also seems like substantially a women's world. Absolutely. And it's also very famously like a place of refuge for femme men, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> gay men and other more feminine mm-hmm. men, right? And so it is like a really complicated set of things. Did you feel steady in it? Like, did you, mm. did could you see where you fit into all that? I would say that the church, specifically the Black church, as it relates to Black queer people, can be and has been a safe haven for many. Um, but it also has come and comes with you know, limitations, right? So you can be Black and perceived as gay and effeminate in a Black church, but, you know, you could only direct the choir, right? And I think for me, my grandmother's church was a smaller church. We didn't have no choir. The congregation was the choir, right? And my aunt, who was the assistant pastor, my great aunt, Inez Pratt, was, you know, the de facto, like, soloist, right? But everybody contributed to to the sound. And so we didn't have that type of stratification in that way, right, as it relates to queer people in our church. Um, but we would visit so many other churches and you would be able to see it. Um, the only ways in which these folks were allowed to be themselves, you could only be yourself in this specific context, They cared about your gifts and your talent, but they did not care about your love or your life because you could direct the choir, but you could not get married in the church. So we have talked a lot about trans women and trans femme people. Mm -hmm. And there is a reason for that, which is there are many more representations of trans women and trans femme people and even, you know, evil imaginary versions mm-hmm. of that from earlier in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And you're not a trans woman. I'm not. You're trans non-binary. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many trans men and trans mask people in the world as well. Mm-hmm. So let's start with trans men and trans mask people. Why do you think... 
Maybe this is above your pay grade. Might be. Why do you think there are so few representations relatively of trans men? I think cis people are fascinated by the idea of someone they see as a man in their language choosing to be a woman, which in our society, women are treated less than men. And also, if they are Mm non-threatening, revered in a dehumanizing way. Absolutely, right? And so I think people are like, wow, you, you chose to be a woman? Um, And of course, we do not choose to be who we are. We just are. Um, But we do choose to live out loud if and when we are able to choose to live out loud. I think that preoccupation with that journey specifically is why we see more instances of, you know, whether it's trans women and trans femme characters or characters that could be conflated or perceived as trans women and trans femmes in culture. And we see less trans men, right? It's a lot easier to say those men in wigs are trying to, you know, harm you than that woman in jeans is trying to harm you, you know, which is what they will see trans men and trans masculine people as, right? Women dressing up as men. And so I think that's why, right? I think it, it that is a manifestation of the ignorance and fear, right, that folks have around their own personal identities that they project onto us. Because the reality is that we as trans people are just showing people how to be free, how to love themselves, right, in spite of the ways that this world teaches us not to love ourselves. And I think when people see us, we unsettle some sort of of something within them because they realize that they are not free and they try to constrict us and bring us back to the... the Cage. <laughs> back to the prison, right? To the cage that is gender for many folks. Um, and we reject that over and over again. Do you have favorite representations of trans men or trans mask people in film and television? I think that we are still, in, we are in a moment right now in which we are seeing more trans men and trans masculine people on screen. And so it's hard to say a favorite. I mean, I have a personal love for Brian Michael Smith, who made history as the first black trans man to have a series regular series regular role. He's on um, 911 Lone Star one of those Ryan Murphy shows. But I love him because before he was on that show, he was on Queen Sugar, right? Ava DuVernay's show, um, this Black show. And he used that role on that show to disclose to the world that he was a trans man after already acting for a number of years in cis roles. Um, So I shout him out um, for his representation and for the work and visibility that he's doing. But then you also have other folks just in pop culture who have shown up on screen in various ways, right? You have um, Chaz Bono, right? You have Teek Milan, who is a, you know, speaker, writer, advocate, and someone that I saw do a TED Talk, 
right? You have Laith Ashley from reality TV. You have Courtney Ryan Ziegler, whose film Still Black um, is perhaps still the only, if not one of few, filmed, you know, entities that center Black trans men. And so I wish I had more, to be quite honest, Right. But part of this work is also realizing the ways in which, you know, I and we as as journalists, as interviewers, particularly over the last decade, like how I've contributed to that erasure. Right. Um, You look at the bulk of my coverage um, of trans people. It's a lot of trans women and femmes. Um, And so, you know, part of writing the book was, I think, about encouraging folks to do the self-interrogation necessary to get us to that promised land of equality and justice and all that other stuff we say we want. And I kind of wanted to, like, model that in in the book in some ways. We've got even more with Trayvell Anderson still to come. They've never lost sight of their identity as Black and trans. I mean, really, it would be impossible. But when they sat down to write a book about a century of film and TV, what did they learn about themselves and their communities? We'll get into that in just a bit. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, this is Drea Clark. This is Alonzo Duralde. And this is Sparta! Iffy. Listen, I got 300 on the brain. We just watched the movie 300 in honor of our 300th episode of Maximum Film. That's right. And to celebrate this major milestone, we brought back original co-hosts Ricky Carmona and April Wolf. But just for this one episode, right? Oh, Iffy, you know we could never replace you. Some of the voices have changed over the years. Heck, the name of the show has changed too. But through it all, Maximum Film remains... The the movie movie podcast podcast that isn't just just a bunch of straight white guys. guys. Deal with it. Find this and all 300 episodes of Maximum Film anytime on MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. You're listening to my conversation with Trayvell Anderson. Their new book is We See Each Other, a Black Trans Journey Through TV and Film. I want to talk about your non-binary identity. Mm-hmm. And thence to the non-binary representations in film and television. Did you think of yourself as gay at some point in life? Yes. You were assigned male at birth. Yes. For our audience. Yes. At what point did that not feel like the right label for your identity and difference? Well, let me let me start with this. Do you still? No. Okay. So, at what point did that not feel like the right label for your identity and and your difference? I will say that as a black person the label of gay is always an interesting one because gay can often be synonymous with a white experience, right? That's the reason why in the 90s, Cleo Monago came up with the term same gender loving, right? For Black people, um, Black men in particular who are attracted to other Black men to use, to define themselves, that denoted a specific difference in experience between Black gay people and white gay folk. And the representations of almost any group in the United States Mm -hmm. where there is 
where there are more white people and where power is even more concentrated among white people are, you know, often heavy with white people. And if you add subgroups to that, you lose more and more definition mm-hmm. among the uh, among those Absolutely. people who aren't in those hegemon- hegemonic groups. Absolutely. And so I would say that in terms of the label of gay and when that became something that no longer described me, I want to say I probably was in in undergrad at Morehouse College, which is a historically black all-male institution in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, well, all-male plus you and some other plus, folks. Who, yes. His, I should get— we should we have, to, in. we have to reframe a lot of that language, but historically, yeah. right? Who, in checked Morehouse, a, who checked a box on the who application the box form. Because we had to check that box because yeah. there were no other boxes right. to check um, or more expansive boxes to check. Um, but that is a—it's a historically black, historically male institution. There are trans people who are currently there um, who don't identify as men and who attended, as did I— um, who don't identify as men. But the lore around the school is all about making more house men. That's the school that Martin Luther King Jr. attended, in case anyone cares. Um, Spike Lee as well, Samuel Jackson. Could go down a long line of lists. Anyway, it was during that time in which I was just coming into myself and I was witnessing just more opportunities and more possibilities for how to move through the world and exist by looking to my left and to my right to the the people that I was a student with, right, who were showing up in ways that I did not know was possible. Being in an all-male environment, mm-hmm. I mean, my experience with this is my wife went to a formerly women's college. Mm-hmm. It was It was uh, all genders when she was there, but mm-hmm. still 75% women or 80% women or something. And there's two dynamics that could go on there. One is, well, it's a place that could attract uh, queer people Mm -hmm. because they, you know, are safer among their own gender. They, the dating pool is probably wider, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's more investigation of gender. On the other hand, it can also enforce gender expectations. Yeah. Which was certainly the case for you at Morehouse because Morehouse is so focused on generating a certain kind of man. Absolutely. And it is so, uh, and that definition is so much about gender expectations. Yeah, like, you know, we are an institution that has a very finite idea of what it means to be a Morehouse man and a man of Morehouse, right? We have even even in the language of how we talk about this institution, right? We say that Morehouse is the nation's headquarters for Black male excellence. Um, but it's it's one of those institutions that also, right, is deeply respectable, by which I mean, you know, there are students going to classes in three-piece suits just because it's Tuesday, Right. We are supposed to be the talented 10th, the folks who are going to save Black America, right, based on, you know, whatever it is that we do, whether we're preachers or teachers or doctors or lawyers. And so, yes, it was both wonderful to be there and be in community with the collective of queer people who were there, right, who had been able to actualize parts of themselves when they were in high school and just continue to that journey when and they came to school. Probably enjoying at Morehouse the fact that they can 
live their queerness without having to deal with the racial complications of living their queerness in a context where 75% of their peers are white. Absolutely. I think that definitely plays into it. But we're also, you know, HBCUs are also, though we're all Black, right? Black people are not a monolith. So we're still navigating, right, a number of the isms and phobias that, that we have to navigate. And so it created this environment that required many of us to continually push back against things, to continually carve out space, to continually challenge, right, what it meant and means to be a graduate of Morehouse College. And it was during that time that I was like, I stopped wearing suits, for example, which was like a big deal. Because you were a church kid. Exactly. Both personally as well as just kind of in the collegiate community, right? Because we... You know, you probably had to dress up at least once a week, right, for convocation or crown forum is what we called it, um, or some sort of presentation. And the fact that I was not wearing suits and I was wearing – started that's when I started wearing clothing that one might assume or consider to be feminine, though it was not necessarily women's garb at the time. And slowly, as we as a society have begun to reclaim in, in a word like queer, that for me – replaced gay because queer allowed me both to articulate an unfolding politic that was, you know, manifesting, but also a set of desires that were less hinged to whatever gender identity label, right? I was, you know, finding a home in. So I knew that man was not quite working, but also knew I I was not interested in being a woman. So those two options were not working. And so therefore the sexualities related to those two options also would not work. But queer was something that was agnostic, right, of that. At what point did you, I mean, you've used they, them pronouns for some time now, but (laughs) I think I I knew you before you were using they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> but I think the first time we met, you were you had a pretty spectacular manicure. So <laughs> you were already certainly gender nonconforming, mm-hmm. right? So at what point did you think, oh, maybe non-binary is a thing that's me? I started gender-wise using gender nonconforming when I was in grad school because I had bought my first pair of heels. I had started getting my nails done shortly after grad school. And so gender nonconforming became the label that I think was digestible enough for those who were on looking to be able to properly, at least at that time, categorize me, right? So they were able to say, oh yeah, Trayvall's gender nonconforming, right? He is gender nonconforming. He wears heels. He gets his nails done. But that was it at the time. And then from gender nonconforming, I went to non-binary as a term that felt right. Gender nonconforming felt very presentation-focused in terms of what I was wearing and how I was showing up. And non-binary felt more identity and personal and, and internal. And then after non-binary came the language of transness. Um, And it took that journey for me because I was one of those people, as many of the folks who are listening to us are those people that believe that transness is about a medical procedure, 
that it is about engaging with the medical establishment in that particular way. Um, And you don't have to engage with the medical establishment to be trans. And so once I was able to do that education and that learning, then I was able to also find a home in that language as well. Did the process of writing this book change how you thought about yourself or about how you thought about watching film and television yourself as a culture critic? Yes and no. I have long called myself a sociologist by training. And that's because that's what I studied in undergrad. Um, And so... The idea of like looking at art and cultural productions through some sort of sociopolitical lens is is innate to me at this point, right? Um, but one of the things that writing the book did teach me is about how I in particular have been like robbed of community, not just community in terms of the possibilities that TV and film sometimes, you know, present for many of us, but also robbed of in real life person community, right? I realized while writing the book that I have a lot of gay friends. Love them, but I don't have as much of a trans community, trans family that... I would like. And I think the fact that I did not know, did not see, have not seen many images and representations of the community part of a trans experience might be part of the reason why. Trayvall, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to come on the show. It was great to talk to you. It was great to see you. Thanks for having me. Trayvall Anderson. Their new book is We See Each Other, Come for the insights into film and television history. Stay for the only from Trayvall exclamations that end about, I don't know, I'd say maybe one paragraph a page, maybe one in five paragraphs. Uh, It is a lot of fun. There is also a lot to learn. Trayvall also has a show that accompanies the book called We See Each Other, the podcast. And of course, you can catch them on the Maximum Fun podcast, Fantai. Uh, it is one of my favorites. I mean, I know I'm saying that because I work at Max Fun, but uh, it really is one of my favorites. Um, Trayvell and their co-host, Jared Hill, they talk about the thorny stuff. They talk about the gray areas in pop culture. They are so smart and insightful and fun and funny. Uh, Fanti, great show. We see each other. Also delightful. Go listen to both shows wherever you get podcasts. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I made it up to the Southern Sierras this past weekend. Um, And uh, hey, it's been rough up there. Climate change is real, folks. Uh, Some catastrophic snowstorms and some catastrophic fires. Uh, But people up there in Tulare County are hanging in there. So uh, shout out to Sequoia Crest and um, all of the Southern Sierras. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. 
Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in those places and follow us. Please share our interviews. Tell a friend, please, if you thought something was great on this show, send it to your uncle. Put it on your Tumblr. Got an anime Tumblr? Put it on there. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.